Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Oregon Bridge. The war on drugs has been a huge waste of money and it hasn't accomplished any of the goals that it set out to do. The war on drugs has wasted over a trillion taxpayer dollars. We're expecting people to get sober, but they don't even have a roof over their head or they can't put food on the table. And like, that's kind of a lot to ask somebody. You know, we have to make sure that we're addressing some of these other needs as well. So basically through this measure, it's like, okay, we have this extra money over here. We can use that to really solve this critical problem. Hey everyone, thanks for coming back for another episode. Um, on today, we have a special episode. We had our first national guest, so someone not at all based in Oregon. His name is Matt Sutton. He's the director of media relations for the Drug Policy Alliance. Um, he's got a, a long background in politics and advocacy, including working for former Congressman Beto O'Rourke, but now works at the Drug Policy Alliance, which is a, a very progressive group funded and supported by George Soros, famous progressive donor that's really working towards legalization and decriminalization of drugs across the country. So Alex, what was your impression of Matt and some of his arguments? It was a really interesting episode. I'm glad we were able to, and, and just to frame a little bit more for y'all, Ben and I are, are trying to release a couple special episodes. We're calling this, I guess, did we call it a surprise episode? I don't bonus remember. Bonus episode, I think. A bonus episode. Yeah. Bonus sounds better than, than those other two. Yeah. We're trying to have national guests who can speak specifically to some of the trends happening nationally, but then ways in terms of that Oregon is leading the way. And what we had Matt on to talk about was Measure 110, which basically decriminalized all drugs. That's marijuana, methamphetamine, black tar heroin, crack, cocaine. I'm, I'm sure there's a couple in there that I'm missing too, but basically Oregon was the first state to, to decriminalize all, all of these drugs. And you can either pay a $100 fine or you can get referred to treatment. And that's basically how Oregon is dealing with this now. And no state has ever done this before. We're the first in the country to try this. And it's funny because if you advocates are really happy about this, who are sort of more in that space of saying we need to move to legalization, decriminalization, but folks who are opposed to this are also happy that Oregon is trying it because they'll get to get a bunch of good data back basically. And from what they think they can show, this is the completely wrong approach to go about it. So I think it's a, a really interesting episode and we had a, a, a number of good exchanges, but I just want to point out specifically to the viewers and what we talk about really early on into the episode is that there is this trend towards legalization and decriminalization that isn't just happening amongst progressives, but it is happening amongst Republicans too. And Ben brought up a great article title that was something like the winner of the 2020 election was drugs. And yeah, I mean, because you saw this not only in states like Oregon, but you also saw decriminalization and legalization in states like Oklahoma too, which are ruby red. No, totally. And I thought it was really interesting talking to him about the opposition to the ballot measure. So the measure passed with almost 60% support. So vast majority of Oregonians um, supported it. But I spoke recently with the head of Oregon Recovers, which is an advocacy group working to end Oregon's addiction crisis. I think we have like the third highest drug addiction rate in the country. And they were one of the groups that came out against it. And they also, you know, their critiques were also joined by folks like Governor John Kitzhaber, who all acknowledge that decriminalization is the right step, but disagree with the sort of mechanisms that they used in the legislation. And one point that he, I, I was telling him about some of the arguments Matt made in the podcast, and one point he particularly pushed back on is Matt's view that drug court doesn't work or that there isn't data to support drug court. He had the opposite view and felt that there was a lot of data that supported the effectiveness of drug courts. And in fact, that coercion, as Matt 
used the phrase like requiring folks to comply in order to wean them away from their addiction. He thought that there is a place for that in our policy space, whereas Matt thought that that was a waste of time and wouldn't be effective. So there's very much a debate out there about the best way to do this. And to Alex's point, it's going to be uh, Oregon will be serving as a laboratory for democracy. And if it works here, it will certainly be exported elsewhere. And if it doesn't work here, we're going to have to figure out how to fix it because we've already got a really big uh, crisis here. Yeah, and Oregon is clearly one of the leaders on this. I actually don't think that we brought this up during the episode, or maybe we did, but the Drug Policy Alliance, too, was also the driving group for marijuana legalization in Oregon as well, which I believe was in 2014. So not only did they pass that here, but they also passed this this Measure 110, the first in in the country, uh, drug decriminalization. And for more context about the group, this group is founded and currently chaired by George Soros, the investor and the philanthropist. He has a ridiculously high net worth. I think it's like 90 billion or, or something like that. And they were the main donors to this cause as well as sort of the architects. And they did say they're working with grassroots organizations here. And I, I do imagine that they probably were, but most of this money basically came from philanthropists and donors who are outside of the state. And also, as you alluded to, Ben, during the episode, there was a 500,000 donation also from Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook, his philanthropy group to put this forward too. So I think what's interesting about that for people is how dark money, especially coming from out of the state, is really influencing our politics. I mean, if you look at it from that way, it basically is a bunch of billionaires who came together to try something new. And they're using our state as a laboratory to try that. So I don't necessarily think that's a great thing. But I mean, I think it is a really interesting case study that, you know, we will be a laboratory for democracy with a specific issue in this way, because no one's ever tried it before. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing for folks to listen to, I thought your conversation with Matt about how the GOP fits into this and how red states like Oklahoma are advancing the sort of legalization and decriminalization movement and what that means. And it kind of aligns with what um, Alex Carlotto said in an earlier episode with us about how you know, I think he said in Oregon, people like their guns and they like their weed. So there does seem to be a political shift and a cultural shift happening on the issue of drugs. So um, something to be looking out for. And I think it's this is a great example of the kind of episode we want to do that links things happening in Oregon to national trends to try to understand what nationalization of politics actually looks like. So it was a great episode and I, I hope folks enjoy it for sure. Yeah, and, and th- thanks for, for keying all that up, Ben. So we're really excited to bring this episode to you guys. We'd love to hear your comments. We'd love to hear your feedback. Make sure to give us a five-star rating as always and hit that subscribe button. Of course, we have to show for that every time until you continuously do it. We will pound that in your head, I promise. When you're done watching the Oregon Bridge, you will accidentally give every podcast a five-star rating, <laughs> even if it doesn't deserve it. So some of our episodes, they're five, you know, some of them probably 3.5 stars, not five stars, but yeah, we greatly appreciate everyone's support. And yeah, we look forward to your questions and feedback as always. All right, everyone. Enjoy the episode. All right, everybody. Great to be here today with our first national guest ever on the Oregon Bridge. I believe that Matt, you're actually in, in New York right now. Feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. We even have Matt from his car in New York. So you can even see the lovely <laughs> New York background. That's right. Which is Wasn't great. planning on being in my car, but here we are. <laughs> <laughs> here we are. Yeah. So Matt, thanks for thanks for coming on the pod. How are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks so much for having me. And so Matt, I, I will have to say to start, I was a little bit skeptical of doing this episode before I reached out to you uh, because I already know that when my mother listens to this, <laughs> she's going to be very upset that I had someone from the Drug Policy Alliance on the pod. So you might be getting me in a little bit of trouble at home. <laughs> Hopefully not too much trouble. <laughs> yeah, the Republican suburban mother uh, constituency of this podcast is going to be very troubled by this episode. 
a very a very important hopefully, hopefully we can win them over by the end of the episode there though right I like that. I like <laughs> that's that. the goal yeah fair enough great my, so my, so matt my, my dad is a republican and i and i i've got him on board with the drug policy train so i'm gonna i'm i'm aiming for that with y'all <laughs> love it okay love nice it. nice so matt so you work for for the the drug policy alliance uh i've known what this organization is for a number of years i know that in terms of with the space when it comes to drug decriminalization, drug legalization, different policies basically that have anything to do with drugs. I know at least uh, you guys are really one of the go-to organizations when it comes to this stuff, not only actually in Washington, but also with the presence in the states. And I know you guys have had ballot measures all over the place. Uh, you've led legislation, things like that. Can you just tell the viewers a little bit about what's the history of Drug Policy Alliance and what exactly do you guys do? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think you summed it up pretty well. We've been around for about, you know, two decades advocating for just various different drug policy reforms. You know, a lot of the earlier work was around marijuana reform. And now, obviously, we're, we're moving beyond that into things like all drug decriminalization and really kind of, you know, trying to replace those harmful criminal penalties with access to health services. So we want to end those, you know, the drug war policies, but not just end them, but replace them with something better, which is access to services, harm reduction, you know, other health services, and, you know, even, you know, things like housing and job assistance, you know, that, you know, can really assist people versus harming them. I'm glad you brought up the war on drugs in your answer, because I want to read some headlines from the 20, right after the 2020 election. These were some of the headlines. From NBC News, 2020 election result prove America's war on drugs is finally ending. BuzzFeed, drugs won the 2020 presidential election. Vox, election day was a major rejection of the war on drugs. And my favorite GQ, last night's biggest loser, the war on drugs. <laughs> so curious from your perspective at the Drug Policy Alliance, where does the war on drugs stand today? What, what are the next frontiers or battlefields of the war on drugs? What does it look like over the next, say, five years? Yeah, I love those headlines, but, you know, I will have to say that they're a little bit sensational uh, <laughs> because, you know, like we still have a long ways to go. This is just the beginning. What happened in Oregon is huge. You know, don't get me wrong. I don't want to undersell that. It was the first state in the nation to decriminalize small amounts of possession of all drugs. So, you know, that's huge. It's the biggest blow to the war on drugs to date. However, it's just one state of 50. You know, we still have the other 50 to go. And people can still be charged for a number of other offenses. You know, if they have, you know, slightly over the small amount of possession or on uh, drug selling and distribution, like that kind of thing, where, you know, what we know is a lot of the people that are charged with those kind of offenses are not your kingpin, Pablo Escobar type people, but really, you know, the people that are, you know, using drugs themselves and, you know, selling it to, you know, purchase drugs, or it targets people that, you know, say you go and you get drugs, you know, for you and your friend, then all of a sudden you're considered a uh, drug trafficking. Dealer, you know, right. Yeah. right. And yeah. so there's a lot of other laws that still need to be addressed. And what we've even seen in places that have decriminalized or legalized marijuana is, you know, the arrests don't end. You know, we still are, you know, arresting people, loitering, you know, public loitering for public loitering or consumption type laws or drug selling, those kind of things. So, you know, there's a lot more things that really need to be addressed, you know, before we can say like the drug war is coming to an end. But the important thing is like, 
we've cracked the foundation with this. Just since this law passed in Oregon, you know, there's been a number of other states that have, you know, started those next steps to enact similar policies. So Washington is probably like the biggest one, you know, they've already introduced all drug decriminalization legislation in the legislature. And actually, I don't know if you all have seen, but there was actually a major development yesterday with the Washington State Supreme Court, where they actually struck down the state's felony drug possession law. So essentially, Washington has essentially decriminalized drugs. Um, You know, it's why did they have to? What was the court's justification for striking down the felony law? Do you know? You know, I'm not a legal expert, (laughs) but but basically the language was related to people that might be charged with drug possession and not knowing that they were in possession of drugs. So I think the case in question was related to somebody had purchased or, you know, had received a pair of jeans from their friend and the jeans had some drugs in them. And so when they were caught- Just, just casually them, leaving your drugs in, in the pantry. Right. Wow. <laughs> and so, so uh, apparently that's where the law, that's where like this case stemmed from because this person was charged with drug possession. And apparently that was like something in the law that, you know, was never addressed. And so when they, they ended up taking it all the way to the Washington Supreme Court and they ended up finding it unconstitutional. So because there are no- lower drug possession laws in Washington, there is basically no drug possession law right now in Washington. So essentially, it has not even just decriminalized drug, it's legalized drug possession. I mean, obviously, you cannot, you still can't, you know, sell or distribute drugs. But Washington currently, because of that, that just happened yesterday, there's no drug possession law on the book. So I would just say, you know, like, yes, I mean, that's kind of separate too, but I think it is indicative of, you know, a changing perception towards drugs, even in in the court's opinion, you know, it was really clear that the, you know, that there is a shift in, you know, people being punished for drugs. And really the court actually referenced, you know, the racial disparities in drug arrests. And that was something that we found in Oregon was actually the Oregon Criminal Justice Commission, an independent government agency actually, you know, did a report and found that if Measure 110 passed, it would result in a 95% decrease in racial disparities in drug arrests. So, I mean, that right there is huge. And, you know, and I think it is one of the things that we've seen with the war on drugs, that the war on drugs is not really a war on drugs, but it's been a war on people. And, uh, and, and, so, and so, so Matt, I actually mm-hmm. want to ask you something there, kind sure. of from, because I think when, and Ben and I were actually just talking about this right before the podcast. Partially, when I think about the war on drugs, I think of, you know, the FBI or some law enforcement agency coordinating with, let's say, some Mexico central authority targeting drug traffickers or targeting drug cartels or something like that. That's at least part of what I think is, you know, sort of considered to be part of the war on drugs. Ben said, I think sort of more what's in line of what you're saying is, you know, police cracking down on users, finding people, arresting them, et cetera, et cetera. So, from the Drug Policy Alliance, what is your kind of mental framework or how, like, how, how do you think that viewers should be thinking about what the whole framework is for what the war on drugs actually is? Yeah. And I mean, you know, obviously, like the whole interdiction part of it that you're talking about and the way that we've got involved in like in, you know, other countries, et cetera, is, you know, a whole other component of it. And, and that has problems, too. I think, you know, our biggest thing 
is really recognizing, you know, these racial disparities here and really the harm that the drug war has created here. But we're also looking at, I mean, the U.S. is the one that exported the war on drugs to all these other countries. We started the war on drugs. It wasn't like, oh, you know, like Mexico decided to have a war on drugs and we decided to do it. You know, like, no, the U.S. is the one that exported these harmful policies. And, you know, like we're. Do you mean like the the mindset that like drugs are bad and should be illegal? Is that what you mean when you say we? Well, not only that, but, you know, we pushed their governments to crack down because, you know, we said that if they needed to crack down because their drugs were coming up into our country. So that's how like the FBI and everything has actually, you know, got involved and, you know, gone after these drug traffickers in Latin America and South America. And, you know, what that has created is a lot of violence in those countries because it's destabilized those different regimes. And and it's also resulted in the immigration crisis that, you know, that we have where we are literally, we've created this violence that is sending people north to the United States. And then we're you know, getting upset because we have immigrants that are trying to get amnesty when, you know, we've created these conditions through the war on drugs that have sent them up north to the United States. So I think, you know, we can't detach ourselves from that part of the war on drugs either in recognizing those harms. You know, it's easy to say, oh, if we need to crack down on these big drug cartels because, you know, they're providing drugs, you know, But we also have to look at, okay, well, what kind of harm is that going to create also by going after those big cartels, you know, and the way that those are going to, you know, what kind of forces is that going to destabilize? So, you know, I mean, there's a lot of different issues related to that, too. Gotcha. Yeah. And yeah, we won't get get too far down that rabbit hole. Yeah, I just I was curious about that. So one thing, Matt, I wanted to go back to of what you said earlier, and I think you specifically, you didn't use the word normalize, but you basically said sort of the trend for decriminalization and legalization, at least of some drugs, seems to be trending in the same direction. And one thing that's been particularly interesting to me, being on the right, is of course, these things aren't just happening in more liberal states like Oregon or New York. They're happening in places like Oklahoma, which I don't know the exact numbers for the presidency race there, but I imagine that Donald Trump probably beat Joe Biden by, you know, 30 points or 40 points, it's something the, like that. Oklahoma, Oklahoma's, it's the first stop on the Trump train, I think. Yeah, it's one of the first stops on the Trump train. Obviously, it's also very socially conservative. There's a large portion of the population, you know, evangelical, Baptist, etc. So to me, that's just fascinating, right? Because you have people who are incredibly progressive who are pushing this. And then you have people who are also part of more conservative states that are are, you know, moving forward with decriminalization and legalization. Why do you think that is? I'm curious from your perspective. Like, what what is making that trend follow the same path despite, because, you know, our country is so divided right now by partisan politics, but at least this specific trend seems to be flowing in both directions. Yeah, and, you know, and it's interesting, like, how this issue has evolved, because even at the beginning of, like, you know, when the Drug Policy Alliance was started, I mean, a lot of our initial supporters are more libertarian-leaning, almost, you know? Mm -hmm. There wasn't as much... And those were like the people that were really kind of leading the drug policy reform movement at one time, you know, were more of these like libertarian folks that would probably identify more as Republican, honestly. But I think eventually we started really changing the conversation to really recognizing like the racial disparities and really, you know, focusing in on that and the harms that have been caused. And I think that's when it really became this 
liberal issue, you know, and, and this issue that, you know, Democrats were leading on. But when we really look back at it, I mean, this issue has been led, you know, on both fronts. And I, I don't know, I guess it was just that it was, it was kind of seen as like, oh, this is a radical policy. So we're going to say that the Democrats did it when it really is like, you know, it's not. It's a small government right. policy. It, especially like having, you know, the whole idea of like the government having their hands off of what you do and bodily autonomy and stuff. I think, you know, all of that can actually, you know, I think a lot of Republicans can really identify with that. And even, you know, just like the amount of money that we're spending to incarcerate people, you know, to arrest people, to prosecute people. I mean, you know, when we're talking about like saving money, I mean, we're spending tens of billions of dollars just incarcerating people for drugs, you know, every year. So, you know, when we're looking at that, it's a huge waste of money. The war on drugs has wasted over a trillion dollars, a trillion taxpayer dollars. So like when you really look at it that way, I mean, it seems like it should be an issue that like Republicans are really like leading on because, you know, they have been the ones that have been the more fiscally conservative. The war on drugs has been a huge waste of money and it hasn't accomplished any of the goals that it set up to do, you know, reducing supply or consumption. You know, also more and more now with the overdose crisis, you know, the overdose crisis has affected everyone. You know, most people Mm -hmm. know, you know, have family members or friends that have, you know, either struggled with addiction or have, you know, died of an overdose. I mean, that's something that's affected everyone and, you know, in a lot of conservative states. And so I think you have that, which, you know, I think people are thinking more compassionately towards drugs and, you know, thinking that we need more compassionate approaches towards drugs. And then, you know, you're also having, you know, in terms of like marijuana, I think more and more people are realizing that all of these like, you know, fear tactics that were used when, you know, during some of like the earliest marijuana reform campaigns, you know, that like, oh, it was going to lead to like a lot more crime and make people crazy and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that just goes back to that early drug war propaganda, you know, that was used to villainize people, mainly people of color. And what we've seen, you know, like now that like, there's a lot of states that have legalized marijuana. It's like we've seen the opposite happen, you know, in, in, in many places, like crime has even gone down in areas like around marijuana dispensary. So like that whole idea that, that it was going to, you know, lead to all these social ills has just been proven wrong. So I think more and more, you know, you have these like conservative states that are like, yeah, you know, I want access to marijuana too, you know, and, and you know, if I get caught with drugs, I don't want to be punished. I don't want my family members or friends to be, you know, punished. I would rather people have access to services. And so I actually, think more and more, it's just becoming a common sense issue. Yeah, I, I actually want to ask Titus, I want to ask you this question, because I mean, it reminds me, we had a guy named Alex Carlados, who was a congressional candidate in Oregon for the Republican Party. And he said something, he was talking about his libertarian streak and the libertarian streak in the Oregon Republican Party. And he said, in Oregon, we like our guns and we like weed. And so I'm curious, Titus, from your perspective, having worked in the Trump administration and, and been at the sort of like national conservative level, is that indicative of a libertarian shift or is it indicative of like a Trump populist shift where like Matt mentioned the opioid crisis and overdose crisis? Like, is that part of this or what, what is your perspective from the right on why things are shifting? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting. And I, I don't really think that anyone has a great answer for this because it's honestly somewhat perplexing to me, right? I mean, if you had, right, like it would be different if we just had people, I don't know, let's say we have Maryland Republicans who I imagine are probably a little bit more liberal than the Republicans in Oklahoma. If it was just 
people on the right in more sort of purple or blue states who are shifting on this issue, that would be one thing. But of course, again, Ruby Red, Oklahoma also decided to, to push this forward in terms of marijuana legalization, which I just think is so interesting. But there's a couple of things. And I think one of it is donor interest to a little bit of it. I think that a lot of folks who help fund the party, who help fund the different conservative causes, they're interested in exploring this as a business opportunity. So, you know, they work with different organizations basically to help push this forward. Maybe they see it as helping with state budgets and, th- and things like that. So I think that that's kind of one perspective. But two, yeah, I mean, it's it could be just a little bit of that libertarian streak, people just not caring as much. I mean, you know, and the Trump administration is actually interesting to consider this because we had Jeff Sessions, who, of course, was very anti-marijuana, right? Like he Drug said, policy. we're going to go, we're going to lock these people up. You're going to try to open your bank accounts or like Colorado, we're going to come after you basically. But I I don't really think that Trump ever showed a particular interest one way or another in the issue. Uh, He kind of just didn't care about it. So I think that honestly may be a little bit more of where the politics are shifting that it's not like you ask a Republican and they say, oh yeah, like we need to legalize marijuana. It's got to happen now. Like this is a policy party for me. But I think People are just starting to frankly care about it less. And yeah, I think some people, as Matt said, are just becoming a little bit more skeptical because I don't think that the war on drugs has been a total policy failure. But in terms of what Matt said, I mean, he is correct in the sense of that clearly there needs to be a revamp in the strategy of what it is, right? Like the supply has increased and also accessibility to drugs has continued to increase. I mean, the prices literally continue to go down for some of these drugs. So I think that law enforcement should play some sort of role there. And, you know, maybe we need to revamp tactics or something like that. But I mean, I do think that, you know, less people are frankly just starting to care about it, but I don't know exactly why, but yeah, I think it's, it's so interesting. So. Well, that's a good transition. You talked about how we need to, might need to rethink the strategy on the drug war. And I think uh, this is where we want to transition to Oregon and talking about measure 110, which is probably the most dramatic shift in strategy in the drug war, probably since, since its inception. So Matt, can you give us a brief overview? What was ballot measure 110 in Oregon? What did it do? And yeah, just kind of sketch out how ballot measure 110 works. Yeah, so what measure 110 does is it removes all criminal penalties for possession of small amounts of drugs. All drugs, right? Of all drugs, yes. So it has to be, of course, you know, under a certain amount and each drug has like, you know, they've identified like different, you know, what is considered you know, personal possession, basically. So, you know, if you get caught with, you know, that amount of drugs or under, you no longer would be arrested. And instead, you would just receive a civil citation. And so what happens with that civil citation is you either just pay $100 and you're done with it, basically, or you can get a referral, a health assessment where you're connected with resources. So that's Again, you know, like evidence-based, culturally sensitive treatment resources, it's peer support and recovery services, it's harm reduction services, other health services, and even things like job and housing assistance. Really, it provides a full range of services to meet people's needs and, you know, and really meet them where they're at and figure out what is going to be most beneficial to each individual person. You know, once somebody does the health assessment, if they decide that, you know what, that's not for me right now, that's fine. You know, as long as they do the health assessment, they're not obligated to doing anything more. You know, they still would not have to pay the $100 fine. And I think, you know, that's something that was really important to us as we were crafting this measure, because, you know, we recognize that coercive treatment and, you know, these programs like drug courts and that kind of thing have not really been effective because when people are not ready 
you know, to get help, you know, they're, they're just not going to be able to get that. And, and it's better that we save those resources for the people that do want the, those services. And so, you know, so that's really how it works. The measure is also unique in the sense that it doesn't actually raise taxes on Oregonians. I know our Republican friends will be happy about that, um, you know, because it actually uses excess marijuana tax revenue to fund services. So basically, when marijuana legalization was passed in 2014, they didn't expect the marijuana tax revenue to exceed $35 million per year, but they went ahead and capped it at $45 million just in case and like created a, a tax scheme based on that, you know, where the money would go. Well, now, you know, fast forward to you know, <laughs> this year, they're saying, you know, 2021, it'll actually reach $145 million a year. So they're saying, oh, wow. A lot of people are bored at home smoking pot. <laughs> how is the state government so woefully underestimating how many I, people smoke weed in Oregon? <laughs> I, I don't know. But they're like, so basically, there's this $100 million, you know, that like was never really accounted for, you know, it's just like, in the meantime, it's just been kind of equally distributed amongst the, you know, the other groups that the original money was going to, you know, it's like, okay, in Oregon, you know, about one in 10 people was struggling with a substance use disorder and Oregon ranked nearly last in access to treatment services. So basically through this measure, it's like, okay, we have this extra money over here. We can use that to really solve this critical problem. You know, we're having one to two people dying of overdose every day in Oregon. Sometimes while people are literally waiting to be able to access treatment, because sometimes, you know, the wait to get into treatment was three to four months long because the services were so limited, especially, you know, for communities of color and low income people that, you know, don't have good insurance or, you know, like just can't just pay for treatment out of pocket to fly off to California or Florida or something like that. So that's, those are the, you know, communities that are really going to benefit from this, you know, and it's not limited to just people that are, you know, caught in possession of drugs. Anybody that needs and wants services can access services in the state of Oregon now, and there will be no burden in having to figure out how you're going to pay for those services. You know, of course, it does work with insurance if people have insurance, but there's never going to be like, oh, you don't have insurance. You don't have the money to pay for this. You can't do it. Now, anybody will be able to access services. And again, certain things too, like housing assistance and job assistance are really critical because it's hard, you know, the way that we currently have things where it's like, you know, we're expecting people to get sober, but they don't even have a roof over their head or they can't put food on the table. And like, that's kind of a lot to ask somebody, you know, we have to make sure that we're addressing some of these other needs as well. So I think, you know, it's a really progressive model that's been created. We drafted this in partnership with Oregonians, and, you know, and really modeled it after the Portugal model, which is, you know, uh, Portugal decriminalized drugs in 2001. And, you know, very much similar, you know, they removed criminal penalties, but they increased access to services. And, you know, now we have 20 years of research in Portugal showing how that's been hugely effective. Well, Portugal has one of the lowest rates of, of overdose deaths, you know, one of the lowest rate of infectious disease transmission, and they have hugely increased increase the amount of people that are voluntarily accessing services. So I think we're expecting to see a very similar in Oregon. And I think, you know, and more and more, I think as we start to see those positive results, uh, you know, we'll have even more uh, states that are also following in line. 
I want to ask um, about some of the opponents of the measure and the arguments that they made. Um, and I'll first caveat this by saying the coalition of groups supporting the measure was overwhelming. Like it was a massive coalition, labor unions, community-based organizations, a lot of big dollar donors like across the board supported. But some people who I in particular respect and admire came out against it. Um, one of them is former governor John Kitzhaber, who like our longest tenured governor, like, you know, classic policy wonk, super smart guy. And his he had a couple of arguments for why he opposed it. But one was that the funding goes to what he called um, 16 different screening and referral centers in a grant program. And I think those centers are based on Oregon's coordinated care model. So every everywhere there's a CCO, there has to be a screening and referral center. And then you mentioned drug court in your initial answer. And he said that this measure sort of strips away that option and that funnel to getting people help. And so his argument was, we don't need more screening and referrals in Oregon. We need more prevention and treatment. And basically that the measure doesn't actually allocate any specific funding for prevention and treatment, and that it really is going through this, this grant program and these screening centers across the state. So why, did, yeah, why is he wrong? So I think, you know, and that was like this tricky thing that our opponents were using. They're like, oh, like this doesn't fund one new treatment bread, all this kind of stuff. But like, these are essentially straight out lies, right? Because the way that the funding structure works is like the addiction recovery centers, that's just a very, very small amount of the funding. You know, again, we're going to have all this over $100 million, you know, just from excess marijuana tax revenue. In addition to also law enforcement cost savings, not having to arrest, incarcerate, and prosecute people, which, you know, could be another $60 million a year. In addition to like, we just got $8.5 million added to the fund from, you know, one of the pharmaceutical settlements. So there's like, you know, could be, I don't know, you know, $170 million or something going to fund services. The actually setting up the addiction recovery centers is just a very, very small portion of that. And those are really just the, you know, the point of referral and really to just get people in the door to connect them with the services that they need. Those places are not going to be that where they like the services are actually provided. The the, rest of them. The OH, the Oregon Health Authority, they appoint this panel and that that panel is going to be in charge of spending the vast majority of the money. Right. And and how that's going to work is, like you said, a grant program. And so like that's kind of like, OK, that doesn't really make sense. He's saying the money goes to a grant program. Yes, the money goes to a grant program because the grant are going to be distributed among community organizations throughout the state that will provide the services. So, like how else are we going to get the money out there? You know, like it has to go through a grant program. And so the Oversight and Accountability Committee, you know, that's appointed by the the legislator and, you know, working with OHA is um, they are the ones that are, yes, in charge of distributing those grants to any community organization that's, you know, that's providing these services, whether it's treatment, you know, recovery services, harm reduction services, housing and job assistance for people that, you know, are struggling with drug use or, um, you know, in recovery, et cetera, can apply for these grants. And, you know, in in practice, what you're saying Mm -hmm. is in practice, the governor's criticism was we need more prevention and treatment. And you're saying in practice, that's where that panel is going to spend the money is in prevention and treatment. 
Okay. Yeah, no, that makes <laughs> like sense. That's where, so what, all what the money we, is going to community organizations throughout the state. Then most of, you know, basically the one, you know, most of them are ones that are already providing services in the state, but now they'll have like a huge new pool of resources to provide many more services and a lot more innovative services and, and things like harm reduction and, you know, housing, those kind of things, you know, a lot of times have a harder time accessing, you know, things like federal aid, you know, like from SAMHSA or NIH, those kind of things, you know, which do supply a lot of the money. So like, this is going to be like, huge for them and being able to really, um, you know, provide a lot more services. And in places where, you know, in like, more rural communities, you know, where they might not have those kind of organizations already, there are things in the measure that will result in those services actually being created in those places to make sure that, you know, that there are services for everyone in every corner of the state. That's really helpful. And, um, and it makes sense. The, the one, the one piece of his critique that like has been resonating with me. So, um, a member of my family, my brother is in recovery now, um, but suffered with addiction for a long time, particularly in, in particular heroin. And, the governor's argument is that this ballot, one of the governor's argument is that this ballot measure shuts down drug courts because the, the drug courts as a funnel to treatment no longer exist post ballot measure 110. And th- I think the argument is like, you take, you've taken away that funnel without creating another funnel that like is in practice and ready to go. And my, my brother did go through drug court and drug court was, and I know it's absolutely anecdotal and not necessarily representative of the data, but in, in his case, like my parents say that drug court saved his life because it's how he got naloxone. It's how he initially got connected with, with um, counseling and treatment, et cetera, et cetera. And so now that option goes away because he would have at the time had the option to just pay the hundred dollar fine, which my guess is he probably would have and avoided going. He, he wasn't coerced to use your language, which is true. So I'm curious what the response is to that sort of line of of thinking about r- removing the, the funnel of people towards treatment through drug court. Yeah. So, and I mean, and, you know, I'm glad that your, your brother had a good experience. Um, I actually myself have been through drug court because oh, really? <laughs> I was arrested for um, drug possession when I was 18 years old. And, uh, you know, I had a really hard time staying sober and stuff, um, you know, and ended up getting other arrests and whatnot. And, um, you know, at some point I was, you know, put into a drug court. And my experience is that like, you know, it was a, it was a huge violation of my rights, you know, because of, you know, the different things that they have you go through. I mean, it's a very humiliating experience, you know, whereas like you are literally like, if you relapse or if you do anything wrong whatsoever, you're punished. Like you have jail hanging over your head and the judge that's like the way that they're trying to treat a health condition is by punishing people and by saying, if you don't do exactly what we want, if you slip up one time, we're going to throw you in jail. We're going to, th- we might throw you in jail for the weekend. We might throw you in jail for the week. We might put you in overnight. And I don't know how it was, you know, in the one that your brother was, but like I had a curfew starting at like the beginning of the program. My curfew was at 8 PM. If the if the, You're an 18 if the, year old with an 8 p.m. curfew. <laughs> yeah, and if the if the officers came in, like they would come at any time in the middle of the night or whatever. If they came and like say at 3 a.m. and I didn't hear the doorbell because I was sleeping, they would consider me that I wasn't there. And I, when I would go back to court, I would be thrown in jail. You know, I had to take an abuse. I had to pee in a cup. You know, I had to, you know, and this is multiple times a week. Like I had to show up three times a week to the court 
to take antibiotics, you know, which would make me deathly ill if I drank, you know, had to have an ankle bracelet that measured my sweat for alcohol. I had to, you know, pee in a cup multiple times a week. I had to, you know, do various different like classes and different things. And, you know, so there's like so many different requirements, you know, that are really kind of, you know, are a huge invasion of your privacy and your rights. And, you know, meanwhile, throughout that entire program, you know, I, I wasn't dealing with medical professionals. These are not medical right. health professionals that you're dealing with. These are court officers and judges that, you know, that are tasked with, you know, keeping you in line. And so like the real question is, is here is like, if we're, if we're saying like, oh, people don't need to go to jail and we want to get them the help they need, then why can't we just give them the help they need without punishing them? And like, because the so problem- I, I, I do want to push back on that, on that just sure. a little bit, Matt. And then we, we I want to also get your, your thoughts on a, well, on the actual implementation of, of measure 10, of measure one ten sure. two. But I think what someone like John Walters would say, who for the folks in the audience who don't know who that is, he's the president of the Hudson Institute, which is a conservative think tank in DC. He also ran the drug policy office under President George W. Bush that, you know, uh, it might not be great to punish people, but basically that something like an arrest can lead people basically back onto the path and towards the path of recovery because- Yeah, uh, I would just say, I, I mean, the only problem with that is like, even if it is sending them on the path of recovery, then these people are burdened with the criminal record throughout their life. Even if, you know, like people say like, oh, well, like sometimes you can get it where it's not, you're not actually convicted or whatever. Even arrest stays with people throughout their lives, preventing them from getting jobs, housing, so many things, you know, that it's like, is that really like, would we treat any other health condition like that? You know, if somebody has diabetes and they eat a cookie, are we going to throw them in jail? You know, but like, Somewhere along the line, we found that this was the right approach to, you know, treating people that are struggling with addiction. And, sure, sure. You know, but, and, and like, I, 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 I buy that for, you know, like, I, I, I think you're totally right, right? Like if, if some college yeah. kid or high school kid is smoking marijuana uh, and they get arrested or something, it's, it's probably, it probably doesn't make sense to throw them in prison because like they're just smoking marijuana for fun. It doesn't impact them. But my sort of qualm with it, I think folks on the right would too, is that something like meth or something like heroin. And you probably know the numbers better a little bit than me, but like, I imagine that's a very hard drug for someone who's a user to say, okay, I have a serious problem and I need to seek out help, which is basically where, and this is why I disagree with the libertarians on this is saying, okay, well, that's actually a key function of government basically is when people need help like that, government can basically help to solve that issue in terms of helping to, you know, forcibly push them into treatment because if you're addicted and constantly on meth or heroin, maybe you're just not in the right mindset but, to sort of want treatment. But so but, Titus, wouldn't you agree though, that like that has been the system and it hasn't worked? Like addiction rates are up, like cost of cost of to governments is up. Incarceration rate is up over like, wasn't that the de facto approach, policy approach that we had? until met ballot measure 110 and it was trending in the wrong direction. It wasn't working. Well, sort of. So I, so there's a couple of things I disagree with. One, like, for example, I think someone like John Walters would basically say drug courts are working, but we need to vastly expand the number of people who are going to drug courts and not expand the number of people who are just going straight to the prison pipeline. Like I can see that point. I agree there. I think there's been pretty ample evidence that drug courts actually, and again, the, the other thing about this issue is that like, it, it's really hard, right? It's not like, you know, Oh, well, Alex went in the store and he stole a thousand dollars from the cash register. He served a year in jail and now he knows he won't do that anymore. Right. Like dealing with 
drugs and rehabilitation and stuff like that. I mean, even just from that experience you described, Matt, one, I imagine actually using the drugs and getting off of them was an incredibly hard personal burden and lift that you and your family and your friends basically had to bear. But two, like the process of actually going through it wasn't easy either, right? Like that's just what I think people, this issue is always underestimated because like, it's just hard to get people to recover. Like, it's not like you can say, go to this thing, we invest X amount of dollars, you go to rehab for X amount of time and you're, you're just good to go basically. So that's why I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's a complex issue. Uh, but I mean, basically we should be looking into the alternatives like that. But, but that's also why I think though that law enforcement can play a key role in that. Of, and yeah, I'll concede the point, we should probably be sending less people to prison over this, but maybe we should be sending more people to drug courts. But, but I, I won't dive us too much down that. Well, no, I th- probably- actually, I think, that's inter- I think that's interesting because Matt's point is like hearing, first Matt, thank you for telling the personal side of this and like sharing that because that sounds terrible. That sounds awful. And like what I can say from my personal perspective or from my family's perspective is like one thing that, and I know like the recovery community will speak about this, but like one thing that addicts are really good at is like checking the boxes and sort of like doing all the things that they're required to do to get out of it um, or, or to like finish the program. And so I think what Matt's point is, is like our policy infrastructure should provide all the resources and options possible to people when they're ready to enter recovery. But if they're not ready to enter recovery, we're just going to dump resources and force people to do things they don't want to do that are inevitably going to put people back into the cycle without actually right. problem. I mean, I went right back to using drugs and stuff, you know, after drug court, <laughs> you know, and it's like, uh, as anybody else that, you know, that I know of, you know, that has gone through one of these programs has done, you know, these programs, you know, it, and it's interesting too, because I would love to know where like the data is that like where any of these programs are saying that they're effective. They might be keeping people off drugs while they're on the programs, you know, because like people are just terrified of going to jail and don't want to, you know, so like, yeah, sure. Maybe it's serving as like a temporary deterrent, but you know, like there's also been like long-term studies that have showed that like about 20% of people died, you know, after graduating from drug court programs within 15 wow. years. So it's like, yeah, you know, like, sure, like we can hold punishment over people's heads and it might be like tiny deterrent at the period of time. But the moment you take that away, then that deterrent is also gone. And like it, when people do it when they're ready and when they want it, it's probably going to be more. I mean, I and I'm just talking to from my own experience and like other people that I know in, you know, I've been in recovery now for, you know, going on eight years. And so I have a lot of people that I know within the recovery community. And it really was like, you know, what you hear people say is it was when they were, you know, when they finally were ready and they were just, you know, done and couldn't do it anymore, they surrendered. That was when they were able to get the help that they need and stuff. And so I think, you know, that's just my personal view of it, that I think it's a very person, you know, I think it's a personal thing and each person has to be ready for that in the court can't really like come in and push people into that. You know, I'm sure there's cases where that does work, but, you know, from what I've seen, it hasn't been that effective. It really is, you know, when people are ready for it. And and again, you know, we have people that want services that can't access them because we're 
allocating resources towards the people that we decide, you know, that like the court is saying need them, which in many cases are people that aren't even struggling with, you know, drug addiction. You have people that get caught with a little bit of weed and we're sending them to drug court, you know, versus like people that are, you know, have been using other drugs and are really struggling with them for a long period of time, can't access them because they're not getting arrested, you know? (laughs) So I think that's another thing we have to look at. Yeah. And, and, and Matt, I want to transition a, a little bit to hearing about the actual process of implementing the ballot measure itself. So uh, mm-hmm. could you just tell us a little bit more about that? Like I know, at least from what I was reading online, that the Drug Policy Alliance, or at least Drug Policy Alliance combined with Drug Policy Action, which I imagine is your guys' 501c4 advocacy organization, spent around $5 million. Uh, I imagine supporting the measure, running campaign ads for it, running TV ads, sending mail, all that sort of stuff. Could you just kind of talk us through what does it look like to run that sort of campaign and to kind of come from, I I forgot if you guys are based in New York or if you're in DC, but you basically set up shop in Oregon to be able to spend that sort of money come from, sorry, come from outside of the state to be able to do that. We'd love to just hear a little bit more about that process. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I mean, Again, you know, as um, was referenced earlier, you know, we had like a really broad coalition of partners that we worked with in the state of Oregon. So, you know, we were endorsed by over 120 community organizations that all, you know, played a really vital role in in the campaign. You know, so we did have a lot of support. It wasn't just DPA like flying in, you know, and and leading this, you know, it really was, um, you know, an effort that was, you know, where we partnered with Oregonians. And so we had a lot of support on the ground of people that already knew, you know, how things were and what the needs were. And then we had a local campaign team as well, you know, and it was obviously complicated because of coronavirus, because, you know, we were, you know, collecting signatures and then all of a sudden you couldn't collect signatures. And so a lot of, a lot of, you know, initiatives didn't even make it to the ballot. We were lucky that we started early on. So we were able, you know, we were able to kind of it got a little, you know, at the end, we were a little nervous, but, you know, we were able oh, to- and Yeah, of, I wanted to ask that, Matt, because, yeah. so, you know, I was in D.C. at this time, so I was working in the administration. I was getting texts from all of my friends across town, basically saying, whoa, Oregon has this ballot measure that's going to decriminalize all drugs. Like, this is crazy. Like, is this going to pass? And I was sort of thinking like, ah, you know, it'll probably be close, but like, I don't really think this is going to pass. And you just told me, you guys were nervous, basically, as you were approaching this. But if I'm not mistaken, this ballot measure passed by 17 points, which for anyone who monitors elections, 17 points Big. is an absolute blowout. So to, yeah. were you guys nervous that this wasn't going to well, pass? I mean, like, we what was more, kind of the polling you were seeing? Well, we were more nervous about being able to collect enough signatures to get it on the ballot, <laughs> which okay. was earlier on. So that was the more we were more nervous then. So that was like, we were trying to meet the early filing deadline, which is which was in May. And then because if we did that, then they would basically like they can tell you like how many, you know, uh, what they take a sample and can tell you like how many are verified and like basically telling you how many more you need. And because we couldn't collect signatures in person, that got more difficult. Then I would say, you know, we were pretty confident that we would prevail just because, you know, we had done polling. We knew. Um, and we knew that, you know, there was a lot of support for this measure. And, you know, and, and just given the representation that we had, you know, in, in our coalition, you know, we knew that Oregonians were open to this idea. I think it was it was towards the end there. We did have, you know, some groups that were really led by like the for profit treatment community and also like, uh, you know, and it, this opposition that just popped up at the very end. 
mainly, uh, yeah, led by the for-profit treatment uh, community, mainly financed by a lawyer, a criminal defense lawyer that basically mostly represents people charged with drug offenses. So, you know, obviously had a financial motive in funding this opposition. So like, it was kind of like, we had no opposition for most of this like two years that we were really running this campaign until like the very last like month and a half. And uh, they were kind of, you know, trying to start drama, you know, on the ground. I I listened to the the Oregonian editorial boards. Um, They had like a a mini debate when they were just, I think they ultimately endorsed the measure. They Um, did. Uh But the, the, the critique was a couple things. It was like, basically it was like DPA comes in they don't console with the local community. They just at the last minute reach out to communities of color and really like just in a sort of tokenizing way, which like was, I, I felt was like very convincingly refuted in the endorsement interview when like it was an Oregonian, it was a, a, a criminal uh, or it was a public defender who like, he was like, boom, 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 boom. Here's 50 names of, of CBOs who are endorsing us and supporting us. But the interesting thing for me in the, in the sort of political campaign context is I think one of the reasons why Oregon gets to be a laboratory of democracy for something like this is because of our campaign finance laws. So like, I'm guessing one of the reasons why Oregon was a really attractive place to sort of partner with local communities was DPA could spend as much money as they wanted on the measure. We have literally no cap on contributions. So over 5 million from you all. Bloomberg did the same thing on, has done the same thing on gun issues. I think we saw that the Chan Zuckerberg initiative, Mark Zuckerberg's um, philanthropy spent money here too. So I'm, I mean, and I saw in your in your background, you used to work for um, Congressman Beto O'Rourke. Um, and I assume you come from the sort of liberal side of things. Like does this sort of big money in politics side of this make you nervous that a big a big donor can come in and even though you all did it the right way this time you could argue that that sort of um framework allows for wealthy interests to sort of dictate public policy i mean you know that's that's been the way that it's been <laughs> you know i mean you know dpa is not a huge organization you know like we uh, especially because you know we have uh, a few different offices around the country and you know we're involved in a lot of different campaigns so like the whole idea even of like i know that some people tried to make us into this like big bad new york group and it's like you know we only have like, I don't know, maybe like 25 people in our, you know, in New York, you know, we have like, you know, I don't know, 10 people in California and one person in New Mexico, like we're not a huge organization. And the money that funded this $5 million, you know, it's not like it just came from DPA's like coffers, like we don't have that, you know, this was like, we raised this money, you know, specifically for this campaign from, you know, our supporters. And, and yes, some of the supporters are, you know, were people that gave, a, you know, good amounts of money because this are, they really care about drug policy reform, but you'll see that with any issue. You're always going to have the people that can afford to do it that are going to get behind certain issues. And, and, you know, and, and sometimes they're good issues like this one, you know, and sometimes, they're not so good issues, you know, and that's, that's the way it works, you know, in the thing. But I would say, you know, even like $5 million, 
you know, it's like, I mean, did you see the kind of money they spent at some of the California initiatives? Yeah, I mean, it's like some of them was like a hundred. Yeah, so I mean, very like expensive media million, markets. It was like, wow, I would love to have a hundred million dollars to run a campaign, you know. And so I think the money was important, you know, because it takes money to you know, run a campaign like that to collect signatures, to run ads, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I think you know, really, what made the difference is really like this huge coalition that we had, and and that's the reason that we chose Oregon to was just because we've worked with Oregonians for a long time for, oh, you know, over the last two decades where we partnered with them on marijuana legalization. We've partnered with them on like all drug defelonization on civil asset forfeiture. So like we've partnered with them and like built those relationships in the state in a way that like we did, we were able to really pull together this really strong coalition that, you know, was able to bring it across the finish line. I know we're over time, but I, this reminds me of one question I want to ask you, which is so Oregon likes to see itself as a national leader that kind of sets trends and is on the cutting edge of policy development. Um, we were one of the first with marijuana legalization. We we're the first with all drug decriminalization. What do you, what do you see as the next frontier? Like if Oregon wants to maintain its sort of cutting edge reputation on drug policy, what's the next policy arena for Oregon to consider? One of our big priorities, but I haven't heard of anything really being pushed in Oregon right now is uh, safe consumption sites. So these are places, you know, where people can use pre-obtained drugs, you know, under the supervision of medical professionals. And, you know, they've become very popular in Canada and, and throughout Europe, you know, as a way of reducing overdoses and infectious diseases. But I, you know, there's, I think there's already other states that I think will end up implementing those before Oregon. So Oregon might lose out on that one. <laughs> California's, you know. You guys uh, are, are slacking, Matt. Right. <laughs> but, uh you know, so I think, I don't know if, you know, but I think there's a lot of things that will have to be looked at in terms of like drug selling, you know, too, because again, you know, the, we actually, the Drug Policy Alliance released a report about this last year, really like looking at, you know, the people that are charged with drug sales are really not the people that, you know, this whole like narrative, you know, where it's like, these are not the Pablo Escobars of the world. Like these are people... <laughs> that are like family members and friends, you know, um, you know, we have a lot of things like drug induced homicide laws that are like, if you're doing drugs with a friend or family member, and they overdose, you could be charged with their murder, you know, laws like that, which we are kind of keeping under this umbrella of like drug sales. You know, I think we really have to look at some of those things. There's also a lot of laws that are popping up, you know, with stiffer penalties around fentanyl, which are also harmful, because, you know, we risk going back to like that whole like uh you know crack paranoia you know of like the 80s and 90s where you know there was this whole idea that crack is so bad so like the penalties for crack are going to be 20 million times worse than anything else you know and what what ended up happening with that was you know we had you know a lot of black and brown men you know getting arrested for you know small amounts of crack being sentenced to like 25 years in prison so you know that's something that we're concerned about and you know want to you know, avoid those. So I think there's definitely opportunities for Oregon to continue to, to be the lead. But I think, you know, this is definitely, I think, really, you know, put Oregon ahead for a while, because, you know, there's going to be a lot of focus on Oregon, you know, really just looking at the implementation of this. I think there's going to be a lot of research that's done in Oregon, really, like, you know, as people watch to see, you know, what the effectiveness of this is. So I think Oregon's going to stay in the spotlight for a moment with this. <laughs> 
Gotcha. Well, well, Matt, thank you uh, so much for coming on uh, the podcast again. Yeah, I think I'll be back in a few months to hear how the implementation process is going and kind of how all of this is playing out. And uh, from some of the folks that in the policy realm who are against this, they're also excited to see because uh, they think basically this will be a failure and then they'll be able to boost their arguments too. So yeah, Oregon is clearly a laboratory in democracy by uh, advancing this and we'll, you know, it'll be really interesting to see what happens. But Matt, thanks again so much for, for the time. Uh, before we yeah, let you go, you where can people find you? Where can they find your work? Where can they find more information about the Drug Policy Alliance? Uh, how can they stay up to date with what you're doing? Yeah, so definitely, um, you know, follow us on uh, uh, our website is drugpolicy.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at drugpolicy.org. Uh, so that should be easy enough to, we're also on Instagram, Drug Policy Alliance, um, you know, all those other things, you'll find us. <laughs> well, oh, great. Well, it sounds like they can find you almost anywhere, which is good. So, uh, well, thanks everybody for, for tuning in again. Make sure to hit the subscribe button. Make sure to give us five stars so you don't miss an episode. And we'll see you in the next one. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, thanks. everyone. And we'll we'll check in with Titus next time to see if his mom has come around on, on drug policy. <laughs> I'm praying for that. That better be the first question. <laughs> all right. See you, everyone. Thanks, Bye. Matt.